by reading some verses again, shall we? And uh, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. I'm going to talk about another bit of this passage later on, but just to uh, make sure you don't miss it as well, let's read uh, some of the things that the Apostle Paul says about life after death, starting from verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I declare to you, brothers, he says, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Right, that's just for a little backdrop to tonight. Um, we're on the second week of dealing with, I think, our tenth subject in this whole apologetic series that has been running off and on through this year, and uh, that's the, the final uh, episode of it, and the second part of what's the evidence for life after death. I have had a bad week. <laughs> I really have. It's been tough. And uh, one of the things I've been doing is been trying to put all of these ten subjects that we looked at into note form, distilling it down so that you can have the notes and have the PDFs and all of the rest of it. I'm still not there. I'm sorry. Uh, we have one more session to come, which will be on the 3rd of December, and I've got a lot of other incidental things I want to say about sharing your faith. And Stevie could say an awful lot more than I could, but uh, I'm just going to round off the series like that. Um, and uh, I promise I will have it all there. That's one thing that's gone wrong this week, anyhow. The second thing, uh, I, I went back uh, very uh, frustrated with myself and discouraged after last week's uh, service. I tried to cram in far too much, and it went on a bit longer than it should have done. I'm sorry about that. And uh, also, I think I didn't necessarily put it very well. We were talking about some of these uh, other beliefs that people have about life after death. And... Uh, um, we talked about spirit communications. Can you talk to people in the next world? Can you get messages from beyond? And sometimes people come across with messages that contain information that they can't have learned from anywhere else. So how do they do that? We talked about reincarnation, for example, and uh, how people can produce evidence to show that they have memories of having lived before. And where do those memories come from? Uh, we talked about near-death experiences, for another example, uh, and, and, and the way in which um, sometimes people uh, feel that they've died on the operating table and had a glimpse of heaven, or in some cases hell, <laughs> and then come back. The only problem is it doesn't seem to be a very biblical heaven, <laughs> or a very scriptural hell that they go to, and you wonder, is this their imagination, or is it something that's real? Because their lives are certainly changed as a result of it. So how do Christians handle all of Well, we just looked at some of the, the evidence for that last week. And I suppose one response you might come up with, which I didn't particularly talk about last week, was why do we need to know about this stuff? 
Why should we think about it anyway? Because we know, we're Christians, we know these ideas are all false and fake, and they get mixed up with the occult, obviously, don't they? And Satan can use things like this uh, to confuse people's minds. So isn't it better just for Christians to stay clear of it? Well, I think we need to realise, if we're going to share our faith with other people, what is going on in people's minds out there? Just take three of the three things I've mentioned just now. Reincarnation. A lot of people believe in reincarnation. It started to become a popular belief in the early 20th century, round about the time when psychology was becoming popular too. People becoming fascinated with their own minds and how their past shapes their experiences. And some of the early psychologists, people like William James, started to say, well, perhaps this amazing construct that you have in your mind doesn't just disappear when you die. Perhaps it comes around for another life and then another life. And because you're not talking about heaven, you're not talking about another side, you're not talking about angels and spirits and things like that, it sounded a lot more scientific and a lot more of a natural process than uh, other ideas about the whole thing. So it started to grow from there. And it really took off, I guess, in the 1980s with the coming of the new age and the idea that you can kind of form your own spirituality and there's an awful lot more out there. And, and, and uh, many people started believing, I've lived before. I've got memories. I, I, I think there are th there, there's evidence pointing in that direction. Uh, now, it's just grown under the surface and it's believed privately by one in four to five different people in the Western world. That's a lot, a lot of growth in just 100 years. I'm quoting those figures from a, a survey that was done in 1989, the most detailed, uh, 1999, uh, one of the most detailed, no, I'm wrong, 2019 is the date I'm looking for, that's right, just four years ago, of uh, one of the most detailed surveys of people who uh, don't necessarily make this a forefront belief in their lives, but nonetheless have it in there anyway. And what they found is that amongst many practicing Christians in America, maybe one in ten, a belief in reincarnation has shaken root. Now, how can you do that and go to a Bible-believing church? I'm not sure, but people are not logical, are they? That's one of the things that you do find when you start arguing with them about the evidence for faith. And so it's a growing thing. Near-death experiences. Well, now we know that 4 to 15% of the population are claiming to have had something like that. That's an awful lot of people. And it's important because, as I mentioned a minute ago, it usually changes someone's life and their beliefs quite significantly. If you feel you have been into death, stared it in the face, you know what's coming, then you're not going to be so scared any longer to confront it. And you're going to put different priorities in your life. And it can be very, very difficult for somebody else to suggest to you your experience was not real. And yet, as we were saying last time, there's not much evidence to go on that it actually is real. And often, this is the danger as far as communicating the Christian faith is concerned. It's claimed as evidence that all religions are pretty much the same. Because Hindus go uh, through a near-death experience, they see confirmation of what they believe. They meet Krishna, the figure of light. When Muslims have a near-death experience, they meet Muhammad. When Christians have a near-death experience, they see Jesus. And so people say, well, we have different labels, we have different names, but actually they're all the same thing, aren't they? And this proves it. And that's very, very dangerous. That's one reason why we have to unpick some of this stuff and know what we're talking about. Then third is spiritualism. Now, spiritualism certainly um, has not done too well over the last few years as an organised religion, anyhow. But one thing you find out, this 
Longing to contact people who've died is that it always flourishes when the world seems more dangerous. And we've had, let's face it, 20 or 30 years of relative peace in the Western world anyway. Oh, I know, there have been 20 to 25 wars going on somewhere on the planet all through that time. But life for us has been untouched by the same kind of worries and stresses that there were that I can remember back in the 60s uh, when it looked as if we might well get to the brink of nuclear war. Uh, when uh, the film was being made, and uh, I saw at university that recreated exactly what a, a nuclear explosion would do to the face of England, and I began to realise I was sitting in, in Oxford, just near the epicentre of where they predicted the bomb would go off. Great. And uh, we've not had that. But now we are, aren't we? We see things happening in Ukraine. We see things happening in Israel. People are getting more and more worried about the future. And as a result, we're starting to see spiritualism coming back into vogue in a new way. It's always been a massive money spinner and a great conversation point. You can always get people talking about it. And there is a fascination there that's just under the surface. Can you really communicate with the world beyond? And Christians need to know what to say about that kind of thing. In, the, in America, uh, uh, Gallup polls show that belief in heaven has dropped by 16% in 20 years. But the idea that you go into another dimension and you're still around in some kind of a way and you can communicate back, that's grown. And how often, just this last week, I was listening to uh, the TV. A woman was talking about how her husband has died suddenly, a uh, celebrity whom I won't name. And uh, she said it was such a shock. It was such a thing. But I know he's still there. I know he's looking after me. And I talk to him all the time. That's not spiritualism, but it's the start of spiritualism. And there's more and more of this vague kind of everything's going to work out all right. There's a wonderful world over there view. And when Christians start talking about judgment and heaven and hell, it sounds a long way from most people's experience. So that's why we're talking about that. Um, a YouGov poll released in uh, December 2022 asked 1,000 adult Americans whether they hold 20 beliefs and these beliefs were chosen because they were loosely defined as New Age Spiritualism. And the survey found the overwhelming majority of respondents, 87%, I think about half of them were Christians or uh, to church anyhow, regular Sunday church attenders, 87% of respondents held at least one of these beliefs, including karma, which is defined as the belief that a person's action or conduct in this life or lives to come will influence their ultimate destiny. That's salvation by works, basically, isn't it? And that's creeping in on the fringes of what people in churches believe. According to Market Watch data collected between 2011 and 2016, the psychic services industry grew 2%, which doesn't sound a lot until you realise that makes it an industry that's worth approximately $2 billion. People spend a lot of money in this area. I well remember being on a Sunday morning programme for the BBC once and uh, they put you up in a hotel the night before and I remember going to the, the desk it's early in the morning, that's the one thing, you never get to enjoy your breakfast when it's an early morning programme, and uh, going to the, the, the desk to check out and there was a guy ahead of me checking out as well and when he listed the expenses that he'd uh, run up in his room uh, and I, I, I was thinking, my goodness, he's living the life of Riley, he really is. And uh, I only realised later on, when we got to the studio, that he was one of my fellow guests. And he was somebody who was known as the psychic barber. <laughs> He'd uh, had a fairly small-time job cutting hair in Glasgow, 
until he discovered his gift of being able to talk to people uh, and, and introduce them to their dead relatives and bring them images and things like that. And his fame just rocketed from there, and his income as well. <laughs> I didn't realise you could charge the BBC for all of those things on your hotel room. I know better now. <laughs> so, that's the background. But what we've got to do is uh, work out how do we talk about the Christian hope in the midst of all of this. And last time, you remember too, we talked a little bit about what the Christian hope actually is. Incidentally, the backdrop to this slide is one word. And it's a word from the uh, Southwick Manuscript, which is uh, a, a translation in Old English of the soliloquies of St. Augustine. Translated, we believe, by King Alfred in Winchester. And this particular word appears in one of St. Augustine's soliloquies where he's talking about Jesus coming back. And it's a word that's used in the New Testament. It's a word that goes back to Jesus and the language he spoke. And it's the word Maranatha. And it simply means our Lord come or the Lord is coming. And it's interesting looking at that. You think this, this manuscript uh, is a translation of something that was written four centuries after Jesus. And then put into English or Old English by King Alfred four centuries after that. And then it's been used by Christians all the way down through the centuries ever since. It's the centre of the Christian belief that we have a hope that goes beyond this world. It's a hope that the Lord is coming back. And we've got to be able to explain that into the world around us. And we said last time, didn't we, that the, the picture in the Bible develops as you go through Scripture. Gradually it comes more and more into focus. In the Old Testament there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens in Sheol, the abode of the dead. But gradually, you see uh, the picture becoming clearer and clearer until, as we quoted last week, Jesus Christ brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the good news shows that it's not just for this life. There's a whole new dimension to come. And that's what God has been preparing us for uh, right down through the centuries. And so uh, Paul makes the whole picture even clearer in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, from which we just read. We also quoted last week David Winter, uh, previous head of broadcasting for the BBC, the last time an evangelical ever had that job, and his definition of what it is that Christians believe about life after death. David Winter studied this whole subject very closely and wrote several books about it in the course of his life, most of which, most of which are still available on Amazon if you're interested. All at inflated prices, I will warn you, but uh, they're, they're, they're all good books. And uh, uh, Winter, uh, in his definition, said... Christians believe that it is as whole people, in other words, your body matters. It's not that your body crumbles into dust and your soul or your spirit or some ghostly thing goes on. But the whole of you, as whole people, body, mind and spirit, that we live beyond death. In the words, no extinction. We go on. There is always something else to come. We go into eternal uh, uh, dimensions. In somewhere that can be called a place, in other words, no metaphor. It's not just this heaven talk. It's not just talking about a, a state of mind or consciousness or something. It's talking about somewhere. It's talking about an extension of everything that we hold most dear, that we're most used to in this world, into just an eternal dimension. And in the company of others, no isolation. <laughs> we're part of a community. The Bible starts in a garden and ends in a city. God brings people together. And the multitude stands before the throne of God, as many as the stars in the sky for, for number. 
That's the, the, the hope that Christians have. We talked to you about the seven great convictions that Christians have got. I won't go back over that stuff now, though. And we talked about why Christians believe in life after death. That's where we've got to. So I want to take it on now and talk about how we get this across to other people. First of all, though, what's special about the Christian idea? We just touched on this briefly at the end last time. This is Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher, who did not believe in God. Um, he once, it once said, I think I've quoted this at uh, Great Parks before, that uh, when he was asked what he would say if he stood before God, he'd say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. In other words, he didn't believe that God had proved himself philosophically to Bertrand Russell's great mind, and therefore he didn't have to believe in him. That meant, incidentally, he could seduce everybody else's wife, but that's another story about Bertrand Russell. But he, he, he did... Hold, stand up to his atheism very courageously and uh, look unflinchingly at what it would mean. And this, and this quote is famous. All the inspiration, all the noonday makeness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Only on this firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. When you point it as starkly as that, you think, surely not. There's got to be more than that. Are you saying that everything we're doing is pointless? Because one of these days, it's all just going to fold up and die. The universe is going to disappear, and with it, all of my hopes, all of my ambitions, all of my dreams, all of my values, all of my ideals, everything that has made human life colourful and worthwhile, it's all just going to go. But that is the only alternative, if you don't believe that there is a God in control who has a future that's planned for every one of us. And Jung, the great uh, early psychologist, said, this is why people are so distressed when they think about their own mortality, because no one can live in peace in a house that he knows shortly is to tumble about his ears. So humans need to know that there is permanence, that there is stability, that there is something coming. But aren't all religions mainly the same on that one? Well, here is the um, fact file on GCSE, religious studies, that's produced by one of the five exam awarding bodies in Britain. And one of the interesting things it says is, Muslim beliefs in the final judgment, heaven and hell, are similar to Christian views described above. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Christian, really. You believe basically the same thing with slightly different labels attached to it. But is that actually true? If you look at the very quotations from the Quran that they use in that religious brochure, you, you read things like this. Muslims believe that throughout our lives we have two recording angels. One records our good deeds and the other records our bad deeds. On the last day, Allah will open the final record and judge people on how we have lived our lives. And every soul will be paid in full the fruit of its deeds. And Allah knows best all that they do. Second quotation. A person is judged based on both their belief or faith or actions or good deeds. Those who have believed and worked righteous deeds shall be made happy. And those who have rejected faith and falsely denied our signs, such, says Hamid, shall be brought forth to punishment. Third quotation. Muslims believe that hell is full of fire, boiling water and black smoke. People cannot escape from the heat and will be desperate for a drink, but will have only one, uh, will only have boiling water to drink. Surah 22 states, scalding water will be poured on their heads, melting their skin as well as what is inside their bodies. They will be beaten with rods of iron. Whenever they try to escape from hell, the angel will drag them back. Just like it says in the Bible. Don't think so. In fact, what you've got there really, if you think of it, is first of all, no grace, no forgiveness. Well, if you sin, you get the retribution that, that you, you deserve. There is no limitation on that. There is no grace. 
It also means no pardon. Once you've done it, you've done it. Those who have believed in work rights deeds will be happy. But those who have not, whew, there is absolutely no hope for them. And third, no mercy. What happens in hell is going to be absolutely horrendous because Allah is not a merciful God. This is so different, isn't it, from what Christians actually believe. And so we need to be able to explain exactly why we hold the hope we do and why it makes more sense than any other relief you could have about the afterlife. So, what key Bible passages should you know? Well, we've done this for every question so far, haven't we? And I've got three passages and one verse for you tonight. And the four I would say that I, I would turn to probably most often when I'm trying to explain this kind of sentence are these ones. Isaiah 8, 19 to 22, which talks about consulting mediums and spiritists and uh, uh, going to look for answers in the world beyond. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 58, the latter part of which we've read, and the first part of which we'll have a look at in a moment. Paul's great passage where he talks about what resurrection is all about. There are people in Corinth who stop believing that the resurrection is actually a physical thing that's going to happen, and they have all sorts of different explanations for it, and some are even saying there's no resurrection of the dead. And Paul writes the final few chapters of, of Corinth to nail this idea, just as he's argued with some earlier ideas uh, that the Corinthians have had, and he says this is a big one. Let's just treat this very, very seriously. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is an absolutely essential place, it seems to me, to be familiar with if you really want to explain the, the, your view of life after death to uh, a non-Christian. Then, of course, there's 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul talks again in similar terms to 1 Corinthians 15 about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and we rise to meet him, not just those who are alive at the time, but also those who have died believing as well. And finally, there's the one verse, I've quoted it already in this whole series, uh, once or twice, certainly last week, Hebrews 9.27, uh, which is a great verse to use with reincarnationists. It's appointed to man once to die, but after this the judgment. And so for people who say, and there are many of them, oh, but the early Christians believed in reincarnation. <laughs> this is one thing that shows very, very clearly that it's not a Christian view at all. Well, let's just have a look at those passages for a second. First of all, the Isaiah 1. Isaiah simply says this, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, the word of God that is, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they'll roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged and looking upwards because they've got king and their God. Then they'll look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they'll be thrust into utter darkness. I used to be a member of the, Associ the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, ASAP. That is a posh name for a group that... Uh, discuss the evidence for anomalous phenomena, things that science can't yet explain. And uh, they once reviewed a book of mine, which had written a book called Mysteries, which Lyon published. And it was about paranormal experiences and how you account for them and what Christians would say about them. As you can imagine, their review was fairly critical because many of them agreed with my Christian point of view. But I always remember one thing it said in the, 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 the review, because they quoted a sentence I'd, I'd, I'd uh, given about, you know, it's interesting when you look at the history of spiritualism to see how many gifted mediums, how many prominent people in that whole movement have ended their lives in total despair. How many have become alcoholics or drug addicts. 
They've had terrible relations with their families and their marriages have split up. That kind of thing seems to go with uh, exploiting your, your psychic gifts in that kind of way. And uh, after criticising the book, they quoted that and they said, well, at least Mr. Allen knows the history of our subject. <laughs> this is certainly what happens and it's one of the big problems we have. I thought that is such an admission. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. You think you're getting answers. You think you're going to places where you're finding something more solid than the word that God has given you. But you go to the dead instead of the living. And in the end, you get nothing. You're famished. You're in distress. You roam throughout the land. You have no sense of direction. You lose all the guide points you're supposed to have. So that is one passage I would certainly turn to for people who are interested in, in contacting their dead granny or whatever. 1 Corinthians 15, I've quoted from verse, uh, here verses 35 to the end, but we only read a few of those verses. Before the passage we've read already, it says this. Some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, says Paul. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. When my wife plants seeds for cucumbers or peas or whatever to grow in her raised beds around the back of the house where we sometimes uh, claim to grow vegetables sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't what she puts into the ground is not a cucumber <laughs> it's seeds and uh, what grows is something quite different down there already the seed changes into something else Paul says that's a natural law of life you do not plant the body that will be just a seed and so what you've got now is the seed if you like and when you human natural body develops into the spiritual body that God wants it to be at the resurrection, that will be something much, much bigger and more important. God gives it a body as he is determined. To each kind of seed he gives its own body. And until it grows, it's hard to see exactly what's coming out of it. So it will be, he says, with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, it's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Our hope is for something much greater than anything we've experienced so far. Something that's connected, though, to who we are right now. Body, soul, and spirit. We go on into eternity, but in the form that God always wants us ultimately to be. Then there's First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Uh, brothers and sisters, says Paul, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Christians in Thessalonica, don't worry about your auntie who died. Don't wonder about your kids that never lived to teenage. If they believed in the Lord, they will be raised. And not just raised, but raised first. And if you're still alive when the trumpet blows, then you will go after them to heaven. But you'll all be together forever. And uh, Paul goes on, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And then he says, encourage one another with these words. There is no greater encouragement is there in the world than that.
Then the final bit of scriptural evidence that I would think is, is basic, although of course there are lots of other things you can use in scripture too, but the, the final one I would use in my package would be Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It is not the case that reincarnation is any place in, in, in Christian thinking. So, when you're talking about this to somebody else, are there three good reasons you could give for accepting the Christian point of view on this one, <laughs> rather than, say, the Muslim or the Sikh or the Hindu point of view on it? What, or the atheist point of view, for that matter. I think uh, that uh, there are, and I'll give you my three in a minute, but first a warning. <laughs> I think it's important in the, on this subject, perhaps more than most that we've dealt with, to realise that this is one of the great questions where people's emotions can sway their judgment. And you can be talking about some very complicated things. You often find this, don't you? For instance, when I'm talking about to, to Jehovah's Witnesses, I very, very rarely say anything about their beliefs on blood transfusions. Because I don't know uh, many Jehovah's Witnesses who don't have a family member or somebody they've known in the past, whatever, who hasn't died bravely refusing a blood transfusion. And so for a Jehovah's Witness, it's a very emotional issue. And I would steer away from that and talk about other things. Because when people's emotions get caught up in the argument, then they become biased. And you have to be very, very careful. Because if people's views of the afterlife are based on their missing of someone who's died, who feel very, very close to, it's going to take a lot of understanding and consideration and loving disentanglement before they're ready to listen to what you have to say on this issue. And just to come and say, oh, well, you think that, but you're all wrong because the Bible says this. That is not going to help in any way, is it? So you need to be very, very cautious and patient and listen to people first before you start coming in with the answers that you're burning to give. But my three good reasons would be these. First of all, belief in survival is built into human life. I talked last week about Kosygin and how, as a, a materialist, communist, Russian, he puts an evergreen branch on his wife's grave as a sign of his grief and his longing and his, his stubborn unwillingness to believe that this really was the end. And we expect life to go on. We expect what we have not just to disappear in a moment and disintegrate. And that's why there is a belief in life after death and culture after culture. In some of the oldest caves known to man, the Srinadar cave in, in Iraq, we found uh, evidence of prehistoric burials. And uh, in one of the caves, there's a skeleton arranged on the floor. And of course, it's almost crumbled away. But you can see it's been arranged. It hasn't just fallen there. And round it, uh, uh, scientists have found evidence of flowers that have long since crumbled into dust of 24 different varieties of blooms. And somebody, thousands and thousands of years ago, before recorded history, ranged the mountains in that part of Iraq, gathering flowers to put around the body of somebody who had died because they valued it so much. It's instinctive to human beings to believe this is not all we get. Atheism is a learned philosophy. It's not something that comes naturally. So that's one thing I would want to say very clearly. Second, the Christian claim isn't built on academic ideas but on personal experience. Do you want to know which of these beliefs are true? Well, the one person in history who's come back from the dead, because he can be contacted, he can be known. And when you have a living relationship with him, then you know you can trust what he says about life after death as well. 
because he's the only one who holds the keys of death and hell. And then the, the third thing is that there are good reasons for being skeptical of the other options. And this is where knowing something about the objections can come in very, very useful and very handy. Because most people have only heard the propaganda that reincarnationists or spiritualists or whoever it might be have come up with. They may have read a book on near-death experiences, maybe Life After Life by Raymond, which I mentioned last week. And they've been overwhelmed by the, the evidence that's presented quite artfully there to make it seem that it's more conclusive an argument than the actually is and uh, to just be able to put in maybe one little reason would throw their faith quite a bit suggest some other possible uh, uh, explanation evidence that they come up with that can be very helpful indeed so those are the three good reasons that uh, I would use in a case like this but we said there's one more, more thing to do on these, these questions as well isn't there not just to give your own point of view but to be able to turn the conversation round so that you're doing some good to the other person as well. You've got to work on your return. In other words, it's too easy just to answer questions and then leave it hanging so that the person then comes up with another question and another one and another one and all the houses on all the different subjects that they can possibly attack you on and you get nowhere because they think, oh, that was interesting and go home and have their tea. You need to turn it back on them so that the claims of Jesus on their life start to become obvious. What would you say to get out of a long debate about spirit messages or whatever it happens to be into looking at the claims of Christ? Well, I think I might use one of these three things. First of all, I might say this. Suppose Jesus was alive. Just suppose for a minute that this Christian message is actually true, that it's right. How would that change things for you? It really was a Jesus who died and rose again so that you could know him. And he's there. And you don't know him. If you'd suddenly realized he was there, how would that change your life? Because that invites people to look at things from the Christian point of view. See a Jesus who actually is in command, who's risen, who's brought a whole new world into existence for people to live in. And... Uh, once people start imagining that and saying, well, I suppose it, I'd have to do something about it, and then that's, that's starting to try it on for size. So I think that's a very good thing to ask them. Second, I would say this. What evidence would convince you that Jesus really had returned from the dead? What would make it conclusive to you? And usually people come up with one of two things. Because as Paul said, uh, the Jews look for a sign and the Greeks are looking for wisdom. And we've got both Jews and Greeks around us today. There are those people who are looking for a sign. What would convince me that Jesus is risen from the dead? Well, maybe he appeared in front of me and said, I'm here and I'm the Lord, so bow down and worship me. They want an experience like that. And there are other people who want wisdom. Well, I would want absolute proof. I would want video documentation. I would want uh, 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 cl clear documents. I would want much more evidence than you're giving me. And uh, that's the way in which most people would approach either a sign <laughs> or wisdom. And uh, I think it's helpful to say, look, you can't have either of those things, and they wouldn't convince you anyway. If Jesus did appear in front of you, that might convince you for five minutes. But it would be so outside the context of your normal experience that the next day you'd be thinking, did that really happen? Or was it just, was it just in my head? Was it a hallucination? Did I just have a brain fever for five minutes? That, it can't be true, so what was it? That would not convince you. And if you're talking about wisdom, well, if somebody did 
uh, give you an absolute knockdown conclusive proof that Jesus had existed. If ChatGPT created a little movie for you of the living Jesus walking out of the tomb and showing you himself, would that convince you? Well, no, it wouldn't either. Because we know how easily evidence can be faked. And you spend the rest of your life, it seems to me, looking for the flaw in the argument or the falsehood that AI had managed to perpetrate upon you. There is only one way that you could be sure that Jesus was alive and this whole business was true, and that is to actually meet him. <laughs> and so to ask people what evidence would convince you and think through it with them, well bring them to the point where they say, well, if I want to know for sure, I've got to take that step of trusting him and finding out. And the third thing I would say is this. Why do you think the Christian hope has lasted for so long and is still believed by so many people? I mean, it's a daft story, isn't it? It's far-fetched, it's ridiculous, and yet in 2,000 years, it's been changing lives all around the world. Why do you think that is? How is it that so many people believe what you find so silly? Could there be a reason for it? Or are they all just very, very stupid? <laughs> and that kind of thing, it seems to me, could get you into the kind of argument that might just help somebody start to glimpse the reality of the living Lord Jesus for themselves. And it's vital, obviously, that we do some thinking and we do some homework so that we're ready for those encounters because there are people all over our society right now who need those answers and will need them more as life becomes more precarious and as, as, as war threatens again, as the economic situation worsens, more and more people are going to be looking beyond themselves for ultimate answers and we need to have our answers ready. We're going to sing a hymn about what we believe, I think, Steve. Is that right? Over again. <laughs>